0: Chapter 13 Parts A and B of Aces Up This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org Aces Up by Covington Clark Chapter 13 Parts A and B The Last of the Big Shows The following morning had no dawning. A light rain had fallen during the night, and a heavy obliterating fog arose from the wet earth, blanketing hill and valley alike. So dense was it that troops in the front lines, peeping over the top in anxious nervousness as they awaited the zero hour, saw nothing but a wall of white that made the shell-tortured land before them more mysterious than any dream of battle ever fancied. What did it hold? where were the German lines, and just what had been the effect of this five-hour tornado of screaming shells. Machine guns, under cover of the fog, were boldly mounted on the trench parapets. They danced and chattered on their tripods as they pounded forth streams of lead upon the unseen enemy positions. Zero hour at last. Along the line officers blew shrill whistles, or some calmer than the others gave the signal with a confidently shouted let's go over the trench tops poured thousands of khaki-clad warriors sallying forth in the most resolute endeavor ever attempted by american troops they had not advanced ten feet from the trenches before the fog swallowed them magically and many were never to retrace their steps the big show they had so long waited for was here with an ear-splitting, nerve racking tempest of thundering guns. The Big Parade Part B At any other time, the Air Forces would have stayed safely at home, not daring to take wing on such a day when the ceiling was scarcely higher than a man's head. But now they must go out, at any cost, blindly flying and vainly seeking some view of the advancing troops but they went out singly, for to attempt formation flight on such a morning would be to court disaster and death. McGee and Larkin were the first of the squadron to take off for the front, the interval between their time of departure being sufficient, to avoid any meeting as they climbed. The fog bank was much thicker than McGee had anticipated. At a hundred feet he could not see a thing above, below, or on either side. He headed his new ship, a swift spad, in the direction of Vaquois Hill, intending to cross the line there, and hoping that the crest of the hill might loom up out of the fog. Vain hope. It was impossible to see a thing. Any minute he might go plowing into some hillside or foul his landing gear in the tops of trees. It was eerie business, this flying by instinct and facing the dreaded possibility of coming a cropper several times he cut his motor and at such times could hear the din of battle below and it was not any too far below either added to the fear of crashing was the thought that at any second he might cross the path of a high angle shell which had been directed at some enemy's strong point it was not a pleasant thought but he could not shake it off certainly the air was full of them and if he was to get any information as to the progress of the battle, he must keep low and accept all hazards. Then, too, there was the chance that he might meet up with some other plane drilling through the fog. Well, he thought aloud, I'm a poor prune if I lose my nerve now. I expressed my opinion of Siddons, and gee, how he'd like to be facing no more than this. It was a depressing, angering thought. Five days, von Herzmann had said, then Siddons would face a firing squad. In the meantime, there was no human agency on the Allied side of the line that could stop the inexorable march of time and the certain death which this man must meet. It was this latter fact, the feeling of helpless impotency, that fired McGee's brain with reckless daring and sent him boring through the fog like an angry hornet. He soon found that this was of no avail, and at last, seeking something that might be of value, he climbed out of the earth-blanketing fog into the clear sunlight, encountering clear blue sky at some fifteen hundred feet. Below him, now, was a billowing sea of fog-banks tinted by the sun which had climbed about it. A short distance ahead he sighted an enemy triplane Fokker, but before he could give chase it had dived into the fog. Over to the right, in what he thought must be the general direction of Montfaucon, he saw a single cedar, Newport, cruising around. He headed for it and soon identified it as Yancey's plane. The wild Texan was sitting above the fog, patiently waiting as a cat waits for a mouse for some observation sausage to come nosing out of the fog. Tex knew that the sun would eventually burn up the fog. The enemy, also knowing this, who'd be sending up their sausages so as to have them in position when the fog passed. Certainly the enemy had reason to see all that could be seen, for by this time they must be hard-pressed indeed. Directly in McGee's path, about halfway between his plane and Yancey's, a black, formless bulk loomed out of the fog. A sausage. McGee drove hard for it and noted that he was in a race with Yancey, whose quick eye had sighted it. The black bag was hardly out of the fog bank when tracers from McGee's and Yancey's guns began streaming into it. It exploded with amazing suddenness, the flaming cloth sinking back into enveloping billows of fog. Yancey banked sharply, flew alongside McGee, and shook his fist as though to say, go and find a rat hole of your own. This is my territory. McGee chuckled. The Texan, instead of trying to catch some view of the far-flung battle lines, was out to increase his score. McGee dived back down into the fog, hoping that it might be lifting. Down below, he knew, a mighty struggle was on. Lines of communication would be shot all to pieces in the rain of heavy shells. Great headquarters would be waiting anxiously for some news of the real status and progress of the battle. At 8.30, the fog was still holding over the field, and McGee reluctantly turned his ship homeward. By that sixth sense, which the seasoned pilot has or develops, he found the field. No one had been able to catch sight of the ground forces. Cowan was storming around, under pressure from headquarters. "'It's information we want,' he told the pilots as they came in. "'Not a tale of what can't be done. Get back over the lines. This fog will pass. This is not a job for an hour.' headquarters wants information. Get it. To McGee, he said, with something of a sting in his voice. Considering the chances Siddons used to take, I think this squadron, his own group, would be equal to this task. It was a lash. Furious, yet realizing the justice of the taunt, McGee again took off, determined not to come back until he could bring some real news of the battle's progress. End of chapter 13 Parts A and B.